Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Home Depot, Equifax, and now Capital One. Tothy, would you like to connect the dots? Oh, data breaches. Mm. All those companies have had major data breaches, right? Oh, and yeah. Please tell me you aren't a victim of one of these. Is that, is that why you're thinking about breaches today? Well, okay, y- y- yes and no. In, in my right back pocket at this moment, Tothi, is my Anthem insurance card mm-hmm. in my Capital One card. So I am sure that some of my information is out in cyberspace slash Eastern Europe. Um, but, there, <laughs> but I was thinking of data breaches really for, for another reason. Oh, because of Sid Stam, our guest on this episode, and, and that cybersecurity guru. You've talked about him. Yeah. Yeah. And Professor Stam is going to talk to us today about checking the effectiveness of IT security systems. And, you know, um, I have been pretty lucky, Mike, I have to say. I have a couple friends who've been victims of identity theft. That is bad. Uh, and they are, you know, really struggled. But I'm, I haven't really been affected too much, knock on wood. Uh, but it is such an important topic for healthcare. I mean, obviously, in the last five or six years, it's been all over the headlines, not just with Home Depot, Equifax, Capital One, but, you know, some of these large health systems. So I'm sure. glad Sid Stam is talking with us today. Well, and I'm, I'm glad that you, you have been lucky. I, on the other hand, <laughs> clearly have not been, oh. uh, whether it's through cyber uh, breaches or electronic selection for jury duty. I, I seem to um, come up on the, the least desirable end of the spectrum, but I'm hoping that um, maybe, maybe Sid's going to point us in the right direction. I got to say though, this topic creates some kind of low level anxiety for me, Tothi. <laughs> so there are just so many things that can go horribly wrong. Right. That, that's that's true. That's true. I mean, I, I psychologically help myself by just staying protective of my social security number. I don't give it out to everyone. Mm, but good. and that that helps me with my anxiety. But everyone's mm. got their little ways of handling it. Right. So we need you to just relax a little bit, Mike. And we're about to get some help by listening to our guest, Sid Stamp. But um, first, before we get to that great interview that you did with him, this should make you feel more at ease and reduce your anxiety. It's time for your favorite thing, which is word of the show. Oh, that makes me feel better already. <laughs> deep, deep cleansing breath here, Tony. Okay, I am good to go. All right. So I selected today's word because IT security is certainly not linear for me. Okay. Here it is. Ready? And fractious, full of winding and intricate turns, torturous. Wow, like the long and winding road and fractious. And yeah, so hey, <laughs> I, I, got, I got a good example. Let's not make this introduction any more and fractious. On with the show. We're recording on a day that the news has been covering Capital One Breach. 100 million of our fellow Americans and 6 million of our friends to the north may have been impacted by this breach. And of course, this is a health law uh, and health administration uh, podcast. So Capital One's a bit outside of our scope, but it should serve as a warning to treat cybersecurity as mission critical for all our organizations. 
And to help us with this oh-so-scary topic is uh, Professor Sid Stam. Welcome to Sound Practice. Hi, Mike. Thanks for uh, being with us. I should introduce you to our audience. Uh, Sid is an associate professor of com computer science and software engineering at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, where he studies and teaches security, privacy, and computer systems. His research focused on online identity theft. Sound familiar to folks? Um, <clears throat> tracking uh, web and physical devices, uh, protection measures, web security policies, and data privacy. Sid designed and implemented many of the security and privacy related features in Firefox, including do not track and content security policy, and enjoys uh, uh, <clears throat> work on any number of other uh, projects. He holds a PhD in computer science from Indiana University. When he's not in front of a computer, uh, Sid usually is at the controls of an airplane or underneath uh, a leaky, broken car with a wrench. He's my kind of guy. <laughs> Thanks, and uh, welcome to Sound Practice again. Thanks a lot. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. I want to jump in because I have real interest and curiosity about something I've learned is named a bug bounty program. Can you describe to me and our, our audience what a bug bounty program is? Absolutely. So a bug bounty program is, uh, is one that provides recognition and compensation for reporting security flaws or bugs in a computer system. So hackers really like recognition because uh, they like to add things to their resume or share stuff in social groups, but they still have to pay their bills. And so there's a group of, of hackers who's really interested in finding security flaws. And if you can tip the ethical scales to make it uh, not necessarily lucrative, but attractive for them to tell the right people about the flaws they find instead of the wrong people, uh, you have an opportunity to fix your system before the bad guys get into it. So uh, a bug bounty program serves to satisfy that. Uh, you offer money and recognition, uh, sometimes just recognition or just money in compensation for them telling you about problems in your system before they tell the bad guys. So, so this isn't a, a shakedown, right? I mean, these people aren't doing it and then coming to you and say, give me money or give me recognition. This is something <laughs> that you enter into. It's a voluntary on both sides, am I safe to say? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the most common bug bounty programs advertise themselves as such. They say, you find a flaw in our software and it satisfies this criteria. Come to us, tell us about it, and, and we'll compensate you for your work. Um, the, the point here isn't to induce a shakedown, as you said, but to provide some sort of incentive to share this really useful information, uh, which could be used to help you or harm you with you instead of the bad guys. And these bug bounty programs have, have been around for a while, is that correct? Yeah, uh, they've been around for a long time. Um, before uh, they were bounties for flaws in software, um, Donald Knuth offered bounties for finding flaws in his books. Uh, he would offer people the opportunity to report flaws to him, and in the next edition, if he fixed them, he'd send you a little check. Um, and and, and this, this grew into the software industry, him being a, a computer guy. Um, and one of the first bug bounty programs was launched in 1995 
by Netscape Communications. You remember Netscape Navigator? Oh yeah, somewhere in the uh, dark recesses of my brain, I can <laughs> I can recall that. One of the early oh, wow. web browsers. Yeah. So Netscape's bug bounty program was wildly popular. They started with a small budget of $50,000 for the year, which doesn't sound very small, but they quickly exhausted it because they had these these people who were really interested in, in interested in learning about uh, security flaws and systems and trying to fix the security flaws, telling them instead of maybe letting the entire world know about it, leading to being hacked. So that in turn inspired a lot of Silicon Valley programs, uh, including some at Google and Facebook and, and other big software companies. Do, you, do the larger companies that you just mentioned that are doing this, I, I'm, I'm curious, how much information do they provide to those seeking a, a bounty, a, a bug bounty? Do they give them anything or they just say, it's online, go see what you can do? Well, it really varies based on the situation, right? And so it's very important to set boundaries for the bounty so you don't have people running an all-out assault on your, on your network because that could bring it down and you really don't want that. Um, with open source software, the bounties are provided as you look at our software, you, you can run the software on your computers and not ours. And so you're not disturbing anybody as you're doing the, the, the analysis and the research. Um, with uh, live systems, like like Google systems. They don't necessarily release all of their software as open source so that, you know, it can be run on your own computer. Uh, so they, they set very clear boundaries about, well, you can attack this part of this system and try and find flaws. And if you think you found a flaw, let us know and, and we'll help you work deeper into our system to make sure it's correct. Very, um, very interesting. And you raised a possibility I've never <clears throat> thought of, which is, it getting out of control with people um, trying to attack your, your system. But it also raises the possibility of expense, right? You mentioned the $50,000, which seemed like a lot, but turned out to be relatively small because I, I don't know, there were so many flaws early on that it was maybe Swiss cheese. Um, <laughs> how, how do, is it possible if, if a hospital system or health system is thinking about trying this to, limit financial exposure to a certain dollar amount for budgetary purposes? Sure, absolutely. You can think of the lack of a, a bug bounty program as I don't have a budget, so I'm sorry I can't pay for flaws you find in our, our, our system. Sorry. Um, that could still be a valid bug bounty program if you're willing to offer recognition. Uh, so you could start with a budget of zero and say, we'll simply list the, the people who were the the top flaw finders in our system on a public website and maybe talk about you on a really awesome podcast, for example. Um, that may be enough for some, but hmm. you know, if you have a higher ability to pay, then you can, you can set a budget and say, we'll, we'll pay for really valuable uh, security flaws that you find in our system, um, but we can only pay so much because we only have a finite budget, so you better make it worthwhile and find the best flaws in our system. Sometimes that'll work to your advantage and you'll get really good reports instead of tons and tons of terrible reports. Uh, but there's no reason you can't, you can't cap your payout. Uh, and in fact, it's really wise to do that so that you don't end up paying the universe. Makes, makes great sense. What about employees? Are these programs typically open to, to employees or is that considered a, a conflict of interest? Yeah, that's the sticky point. Uh, most of the time, employees are exempt from participa per 
participating in these programs because, uh, well, well, frankly, you're already paying them to do a job. And if they stop doing that and start doing this instead, it's a new job. And maybe mm. contractually they should be doing that for salary instead because they're your employee. I haven't seen bug bounty programs that encourage employees to look for bugs and still compensate them. I have seen bug bounty pro programs that say, if you're a current employee, we can't pay you, but we'll give you recognition. Okay, fair, uh, fair enough. I think we should take a brief, um, <clears throat> a brief break here, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about how people can go forward with the bug bounty program. All right, so welcome, welcome back. We were deep into bug bounties, and you were flagging things that, that should be done or, or problems that need to be avoided when creating a bug bounty program. Do you recommend having someone as a, as a guide or a consultant to help if a health system uh, wanted to implement a bug bounty uh, program? Is this not to be tried by a novice? <laughs> this, this could potentially be, be dangerous by you know, trying, trying this without having seen it execute uh, somewhere else. Uh, so I would recommend getting some advice, especially if you run a, a critical system like a healthcare network. Um, the, the best thing you, should, you could do is go find a reputable firm that specializes in this, uh, or if you do regular uh, security testing through some contract firm uh, or audit firm, uh, you could ask them if, if they know of somebody or are willing to help you establish a bug bounty program. And bug bounty programs really are not for everybody. If you don't want random people off the street trying to break into your system, you probably shouldn't offer a bounty on flaws in the system. Uh, if you want more control, uh, you, you should probably talk to a security contract firm and have them do it. Uh, and then you have control over who is attacking your system and when and to what end. Sounds, uh, sounds very reasonable in the healthcare area. Uh, we very well might cross the line into needing to have someone be a business associate because they could be seeing uh, some protected health information, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we might want to have someone that we know um, brought on board. Yeah, it's very possible. But it, it could be that, that your organization has uh, a second copy of their system set up for testing that doesn't have real private information. It has some fake data in it, like a, a testing setup. Um, that might be a really good opportunity to direct people who want to try and find bugs in your system to a system that they can play with without having a negative effect on you know, people's health records. Um, and, and the reason you may consider this, if you have this, uh, this testing environment copy available, is hiring just a contract firm doesn't maximize potential for finding all the flaws in your system so that you can fix them, right? To maximize potential, uh, you need more than uh, w what are called the white hat hackers hired by these firms. So let's talk about hats for a little, little while here. White okay. hat hackers, uh, that's a term for people who like to do security research and testing of systems, uh, but only to help gain their, their customers. They do it for good. Um, there's another term called black hat hackers, which is a term for somebody who likes to breach security of systems for a criminal game. Um, in the middle, you have what I like to call the gray hat hackers. And, and these are the people that aren't out 
for just criminal gain and they're not out for just doing things for their customers, uh, but they're really interested in security of systems and finding new security flaws and are driven by the satisfaction of finding the flaws. But they're also driven by their reputation and their ability to pay the bills. And so in this case, the gray hats are the ones who can drift both or either to the good side or the bad side, depending on who's willing to help them pay their rent, right? And so a bug bounty program gives them the recognition they desire, but also potentially uh, enough money, maybe not a lucrative salary, but enough that if they have to make a decision between selling it to a criminal organization and giving it to the good guys, and they have a conscience, they're going to give it to the good guys and they can still make rent. Now, if you don't offer that pay, they're going to go find somebody else who will pay because ultimately they got to buy food. They got to put dinner on the table. Uh, and so you, you miss out on them by only going through the contract company firm option. But like you said, it may not be an option, right? If, if, you've, sure. if you don't want random people that you've never met attacking your system and potentially gaining access to medical records, this, this might not be for you. Yeah, I can imagine it might be a difficult conversation with the general counsel of your organization if we want to um, go, go down that, that path. But tell me, if we were interested in, in some, some white hats, if, if, if I'm just nervous by nature that gray hat's getting me a little bit uh, close to potential trouble, but I'm, I'm all in for ethical uh, hackers, how do I go about identifying a firm or an individual? Where would I even start to look? Yeah, that's a great question. There are uh, thousands of security consulting firms out there. Um, many of them are auditing firms that do more than security. And, you know, running a, a healthcare uh, organization, you're probably familiar with audit and compliance. So uh, a lot of the big audit firms will also do security audits, and they include something that's called a penetration test. And a penetration test is where some employees of the audit firm will, will attempt to break into your system just to see if they can, and then report back to you if they figure out how to break into your system and give you advice on how to fix it. So it's literally trying to penetrate your security measures. And if they can, they tell you how, so you have an opportunity to make it better. Um, this is a great way to employ some white hat hackers through hmm. an audit, right? So if you're doing okay. a security audit on your system anyway, they're probably part of it. Sound, sounds good. What best practices, industry standards, how frequently should we, um, should we engage ethical hackers or, or think about this? Well, one way to think about it is, do you wear seatbelts in your car now or only after you've hurt yourself in a crash, right? Like by the time you've hurt yourself in the crash, it's really too late for the seatbelt to be effective. And mm -hmm. safety features are best when they can be used to prevent problems instead of as, as a reaction to the problem that already occurred. Um, obviously, it can be really difficult to obtain a budget line item and spend money on uh, cybersecurity. And this is, this is a problem I see over and over as well. We can't spend money on it because there's, there's not a clear risk. Um, but just like wearing seatbelts, if you have the opportunity and you can make a convincing uh, argument for spending money on security testing, this is like wearing a seatbelt for cybersecurity. I want to drift back to the, the penetration test because okay. I know of a number of folks that have, have tried this or have con contemplated it. And I guess I just need a little bit of, of clarification. 
this this is a tool used by uh, ethical hackers or is it its own do we do one or the other or a combination with ethical hacking how does that work well a penetration test is a broad look at your your computer setup to figure out if it if if your security measures can be penetrated um, the ethical hacking is usually part of that where uh, the employees of the testing firm will try and hack into your system uh, via technical or even social means then you you may hire them to walk walk into your hospital and see if they can get close to your servers that are in the basement or something like that. Um, and so all of the things that could be done to try and penetrate your security measures can be done during a penetration test. But this is done under, you know, close contractual relationship where you, you set really clear limits on what they're supposed to do. And, and they tell you what their abilities are and they only do those things. Um, if you want to expand upon that, the main difference between using um, like a penetration test firm and offering a bug bounty is really the control of who's doing the hacking. Gotcha. And That's if, all. if you have a contractual relationship, you've got good, clear verification of who's going to do what. Uh, but with a bug bounty program, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a best intentions type of thing. You tell people what's okay and what's not okay. Hopefully that's what they do. Uh, and um, usually it works out pretty well. The bad guys are still going to be bad guys, but they were going to do it whether or not you told them about a bug bounty. Understood. Yeah. Very, very interesting. We're going to take one last quick pause. We'll be back and we're going to switch focus to Internet of Things. All right. Thanks for sticking with us. We're now back with Professor Sid Stam of Rose Holman Institute of Technology, who is getting us up to speed on all things cybersecurity. And one of the big concerns going forward, I think, is going to be Internet of Things. We're starting to hear more about this in, in popular culture, but certainly hospitals know this. I've read a recent study that showed six to seven devices per bed connecting to the hospital's network. And so <clears throat> this is clearly a, a hotbed of, of concern in cyber security. It's a bit of an open-ended question, Sid, but, but where's a hospital to begin? Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard question. Um, that's what people in all industries are asking right now is if if we want support for Internet of Things in our space, how do we secure those Internet of Things? Um, and, and in reality, Internet of Things is just a bunch of little computers. And the principles of securing them are almost exactly the same. But there are some really substantial differences in the approaches that you would take to secure IoT devices, the Internet of Things devices, versus traditional computers. You know, the first thing is that they're small. And so sometimes they're really hard to find or pinpoint exactly where they are. And use of them is, is unobvious. And so keeping Internet of Things devices out of your space can be substantially harder than keeping computers out of your space, computers you don't trust. Uh, a second thing is that they're intended to be low power and low resource consuming, which means they're, they're battery powered or they use very little power when they're plugged in. And... Um, that means that the engineers have to cut corners when they engineer these devices. They can't do everything that a standard computer that has no power restrictions can. Uh, and so something has to give. And a lot of the times, because of the, the size 
and energy use requirements, the engineers sacrifice on security related stuff. And what we're finding in the academic literature right now is all of the IoT security articles being published are really reminiscent of computer security articles from five or 10 years ago. And that means that we have new little devices that need to catch up in cybersecurity and they provide additional risk when introduced uh, into your computer network. So it seems to me that maybe the first place to start is at least a comprehensive list of what, what all these little computers or devices are, are interacting with our network. Is that, is that a reasonable place to start? I, th I think that's a fantastic place to start. And, and your IT folks would say the same thing. You know, we need an inventory of all the devices on our network so that we know what's supposed to be there and what's not, right? And, and when, when your networks are set up, um, IT or whoever's designing the network should really consider separating things by purpose. For example, the IoT devices that you, you mentioned that are attached to hospital beds, um, those are communicating with each other somehow on some network. Probably your patient's cell phone that's in the same room shouldn't be communicating on that same network because it has a different purpose, right? It's personal communication versus, you know, um, health data. Uh, and and, and this is a pretty standard security principle, but it's important to be very regimented about this when, when setting up your network. This is even harder with IoT because IoT devices tend to be connected wirelessly and they use uh, Bluetooth or Zigbee or a variety of other insert buzzword here terms, uh, ways of communicating with each other wirelessly. And you can't see that uh, versus the wires with computers. You can see what's connected to what. You can see if somebody's plugged into your network. Uh, it's a lot harder with IoT. And so it's very important uh, when things are set up that a risk profile is set for the network and you decide how things will connect and make it really clear how things will be kept out of the network. Fascinating. It wasn't that long ago that um, we all read about the casino that was was hacked in, in Vegas through the thermostat on a uh, aquarium for fish you know, just to display <laughs> yeah. and got into the uh, the whole the whole network for the the casino costing large amounts of money and mm -hmm. it's these kind of things that do not occur to most people uh, at least not to me that mm -hmm. you have vulnerabilities in places that you don't even know yeah, and w when you set up computer systems for just functionality and not security, um, you get a rich, vibrant environment where everything can interact with everything else. And that means that all of the security flaws in all of the devices are connected. <laughs> that should scare you, right? Um, this is what scares people about airplane security because of you know, the, the devices and the seat backs and the mm -hmm. Wi-Fi network on the airplane and people are really concerned that all of these are connected to the avionics in the airplane and somebody who is able to hack the TV on the screen back is gonna be able to control the plane. Now, in reality, most planes are designed with completely separate networks that separate everything by function. There's a separate network for entertainment as there is for controlling the airplane. Um, and this is a really excellent principle that that casino could have learned from, right? The thing controlling the fish tank should not be connected to the cash registers, right? <laughs> That's probably yeah. not wise to allow the fish to cash people out. In the medical world, that's quarantining, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you, you want to keep things that need to be communicating with each other limited 
to that set of things that need to be communicating with each other. Perfect. We're, we're running tight on time, but I know that we have a lot of people that are interested in mobile devices because it's become a real tool of, of medicine, uh, smartphones and, and, and mobile devices, um, as, you can, as you can imagine. Can you speak generally to security risks arising from mobile devices? Yeah, I think the security risks for mobile devices are very similar to the IoT devices um, in that the communication that they do is invisible and the function that they have is is wide and varied. Like I can do everything on my phone and I really like that I can do everything on my phone, but that introduces risk to everything that I do on my phone because if I am accessing my bank's website on my phone and I'm also uh, looking at cat videos on websites I've you know, not checked out before. Please say uh, it isn't so. Videos. What's that? Please, please say it isn't so about the cat yeah. videos. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. If one of those cat videos has a virus, you know, now my bank might get the virus uh, because mm. I've introduced a conduit between the two because those two functions have, haven't been separated. And separating things by function, that quarantine principle, is a really good way to prevent security breaches. And this comes right into mobile as well. If you can find a way to separate the way apps on the phone interact carefully and verify that they're separated, then maybe you can allow somebody who's using the app on their phone to communicate with your hospital network, right? But mm -hmm. there's always the networks between the phone and your institution that you also need to trust. You either need to trust or protect against untrustworthy networks. For example, if I am able to log on to an employee website from my smartphone in a Starbucks or some coffee shop that has a completely okay. unsecured Wi-Fi network, mm -hmm. I am now exposing myself and the communication that my phone is doing to everybody else in that environment. And if you aren't absolutely certain that the phone is secure and the connection between the phone and your network is secure, then there's risk. And you have to start asking yourself, how much risk are you willing to take on? Um, mm -hmm. Especially with smartphones, because the inputs aren't just the screen, right? You've got the cell networks, you've got the camera on the phone, you've got the, the microphone on the phone. You've got people standing next to me in line to get their coffee who can be looking over my shoulder and maybe see my password as I type it in. Um, the environment that mobile devices can be in is so varied and uh, the risk profile of those is a lot greater than things that are in control of your physical space, right? So all of this speaks to the need for mobile device policies. Would you yeah, agree? It's, it's important to... Uh, at least tell your employees what they're allowed to do with the mobile devices. Um, it's important to have your IT staff make sure that that is how mobile devices are interacted with. For example, uh, if people aren't allowed to log in from outside your institution, then maybe you make it so that they physically can't log in from outside your institution, even if they use the right password. Um, but the policy is a great way to, to minimize risk by telling people what's okay to do and what's not okay to do, as long as they're going to follow the policy. Understood. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for taking your time uh, to get me up to speed on bug bounties and white, gray, and black hat hackers. It's a, it's a new universe for me, and I'm sure for some of our, our audience. So thank you. We have been speaking with Professor Sid Stam of Rose-Hulman Institute of Technology. And 
we thank you very much for your time, Sid. It was my pleasure. I love to talk about hat colors anytime. <laughs> Thanks again. So, Mike, I'm sure you feel a little less hopeless, and certainly your anxiety has been reduced after talking to Sid Stam. I don't have a monitor on, but I got to tell you, blood pressure, definitely down, Tusty. Definitely. <laughs> yes. yes. All right. So I have now been introduced to the new world of bug bounties and hackers and different hats. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tusty, who knew? Yeah, he was, he was really interesting to listen to with all this stuff. And I actually thought the discussion about the Internet of Things or IoT as it's called security around that was fascinating because I've been watching that space and I, I just think it's one of the cooler parts of health IT. Uh, so I, I enjoyed listening to that part of the interview. Oh, me too. And you're right. It is, it is an interesting area and certainly one that is extraordinarily important today and will only become more important to um, health systems and, yeah. and healthcare in, in general. So um, Sid Stam, uh, information, contact information, I'm going to have posted in the show notes. And certainly he helped distill cybersecurity options for me as, uh, throughout this, this interview. So I, I thank him and um, re recommend him. Well, Tothi, unfortunately, we are out of time. I hope everyone enjoyed our interview with Professor Sid Stam. If you did, please consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Yes, please do that. We really would like to have some ratings and reviews from you listeners. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com. With the lens on Zoom, what will Rizzuto had his holy cow? That man Robin went from Kapow.